You're listening to audio from Calvary Baptist Church of Port Austin. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about us, please visit cbcportaustin.org. In a lot of action movies and novels, uh, you'll find a recurring theme of this idea that the main characters have to kind of gain access to this powerful weapon or this powerful source. And so um, take Star Wars, for example. They, the Jedi has to somehow harness the force, right, if he's going to be effective against evil. And, and if you take the sword and the stone, young Arthur, young King Arthur has to be able to grab that, stone, that sword and pull it out. And, and he's the one that, that finds the sword, this powerful sword that's going to change everything. Or take the Lord of the Rings that was popular a few years ago with with this idea that if they could just get that one ring, that they would change everything. And, and it's this one powerful ring. And you're going to find that really all throughout um, movies, books, stories. And what's interesting about that is that even though those are just tales of fantasy, us as Christians, we actually have access to a powerful, powerful weapon like that. That really, if we can get a hold of it, and we can understand it, and we can learn to use it effectively, it really will change everything. It's not just a fairy tale. Um, it's not just a, a hope or, or a, a dream or a story that we tell. It's, it's really true. And, and I want to show you that weapon here in Romans chapter 1. Paul begins his letter to the church at Rome um, by explaining what this letter is all about. And really, if you read Romans, it's an unpacking of the gospel. But he starts off, and this is kind of his thesis statement for the book. In Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now notice that phrase, it is the power of God. What he's saying is that the gospel message is backed by and empowered by the God of the universe. And so as we think about those, those tales and those stories and, and all the movies where they, if they could just get a hold of this, it would change everything. That's really how it is for us as Christians. If we could just understand the power that is in the message of the gospel and learn how to use it in our lives and the lives of others, it really would change everything. And notice that he's not just saying that the gospel is a powerful message. Um, there are many powerful messages in the world. There are, there are messages that you can see on TV in a commercial that can really kind of tweak your emotions and change you. And it's a powerful message. There's, there's messages that, that maybe make us laugh and, and make us want to buy a product. And there's a lot of powerful messages out there. But he's not saying that this is a powerful message. And he's not even just saying that it's the most powerful message. He's saying this is the power of God. It's in a category all by itself. That God, the God of the universe, has chosen to make the gospel message His power, His instrument of power to awaken dead sinners to life. I love what Greg Gilbert says about this when commenting on this verse. He says, we as Christians can have unshakable confidence in the gospel because it is empowered by the God of the universe. So I want you to realize today, as we think about what is the gospel, I want you to realize how powerful it really is. So if you are a Christian today, it's a miracle. You heard the power of the gospel and you were brought to life spiritually. Now, this is why this is so cool. The same God that said, let there be light and there was light, spoke to your dead soul and brought you to life through the message of the gospel. 
That's how powerful it is. And so we can have confidence in it in our own lives that this message will not ever prove to be ineffective or unfaithful in our own lives. It's, it's true. We can bank on it in our own lives. But we can also have confidence in sharing it with others. You know, when it comes to the gospel, sometimes we feel like we've got to package it in such a way um, that people can, can kind of palate it, that they can, they can enjoy it, they can hear it, and they can respond appropriately. And so we put all this pressure on us. How can I kind of share the gospel in this unique, special way that, to get my friends to believe it? But, but if we understand how powerful the gospel really is, then it doesn't matter how, how articulate we are and how good we are at explaining. As long as we share what it is, what the Bible says it is, we can have confidence that God's going to use it because it's the power of God. One preacher put it this way. He said, the gospel is like a lion. I just have to open the cage and get out of the way. Right? And sometimes we feel like we have this pressure um, to, to make our, our unbelieving friends and family believe, but we can't do that. It's impossible. I say it all the time, but if we had to go to the cemetery and just raise one, it's impossible. And that's what we're doing when we go out on mission and we start this new series of a life on mission and, and joining the mission of God and sharing the gospel with others. We have to understand that it's not, it's not on us. It's not our power. It's not our ability that's going to save people. It's God through the message of the gospel. So I want you to think about how powerful the gospel is. Not only the fact that you're alive today spiritually because of it, but when you open your mouth and you declare the gospel to others, there is a power. It's backed by, electrified by the God of the universe. That's pretty awesome. And so if if we're going to be able to handle this powerful gospel message correctly, then we need to understand what it says. Um, And that's what I want to do today. And in those verses, what Paul says is he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says it's the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth. He says it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning it's to everyone. The Jews had two categories, the Gentiles and the Jews, but that meant the whole world. And he says in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So from start to finish, it's about faith. The just shall live by faith. So what is the gospel? That's what I want to look at today. What is this gospel message that's so powerful because if you um, go on different blogs and listen to different sermons and read different authors, um, you're going to get a lot of different answers of what the gospel is. Some of them with, with nuggets of truth, some of them that are, that are right, some of them that are just flat out wrong. And so we need to understand what the gospel is if we're, if we're going to actually use it faithfully in our lives. And so that's what I want to do today. And I want to use a kind of a way to help you understand this that I learned from Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel? And in that book, um, he actually explains it with four words that I think if you can just remember these, it'll really help you. God, man, Christ, response. He says, if you will study the, the, the book of Acts, study Romans, study all of the, the letters of Paul and look at the different gospel messages that people shared What you're going to find is four different categories within that message that they always cover in some way or another. And that's God, man, Christ, response. Another way to look at it is who are we accountable to? What is our problem? What is our solution? And how do we get included into that solution? That's that's what these four areas. If you can remember those four areas, it'll help you remember the gospel. God, man, Christ, and response. And, um, and I want you to understand that you can't just sit down with your unbelieving friend and say, 
God, man, Christ, response. And boom, they say, they're saying, no, that's not the gospel. Th- those four kind of help you as a mental checklist as you go through those when you're sharing the gospel. What do I need to cover? I need to tell them about God. I need to tell them about man and our sin. I need to tell them about Christ and what he did to take care of our sin. And I, and I need to tell them how to respond. If you'll remember those four words, then you're never going to be caught off guard when it comes to the gospel. Okay, So we are sent on mission by God. We talked about that last week. And the way God is going to use us to bring glory to him and make disciples is through our proclamation of the gospel. And so we need to understand how to share the gospel. We need to understand what the gospel is. I want to be a church that if I pulled any of you up to the front and I gave you a microphone and said, tell me what the gospel is in in a minute or less, I want you all to be able to tell me what the gospel is. It's so central to our faith. I'm not looking for a long, systematic theology of unpacking the gospel, but you should be able to share what the gospel is. That is what saves our souls for all eternity. That is what brings us together as a church. So we need to understand what the gospel is. And so we're going to walk through those four words today. And first, we'll look at God. We are accountable to God. To understand the gospel, you have to start with God. Okay, it's got to begin with God. The Bible teaches that in the beginning, there was an all-powerful God that created everything, including you and me. And because he is our creator, we are held accountable to him. Okay, if he made us, he has the right to tell us how to live, and he will hold us accountable for how we live. You've got to understand that, especially in your own life, and especially when sharing it with others, that there is a God He created you. He has the right to tell you how to live, and he will hold you accountable one day. Now, people don't like accountability. In fact, we have this kind of idea in our minds that we're really not accountable by anyone, especially in America, because we're free. And so if you've got a a really bad job, and and your boss is kind of a a lame boss, and you want to get out of there, then you can go get another job, right? You're you're not ultimately accountable to that boss. If, if you're a teenager and you're in a, in a house and you think your parents are so dumb, you have this idea that, man, when I get old enough, I'm out of here. I'm going to do my own thing um, because I'm not ultimately accountable to them. And we have this idea that we're not really accountable. But when it comes to going right to the source of accountability, it's God. And you can't escape the accountability of, of God. He will hold us accountable. He created us. He gave us life, and we've got to understand that, that there is a God, and He will hold us accountable for how to live. Now, if you were to ask people, what is God like, and you're going to get a lot of interesting responses. And, and so, so even though people know, okay, yes, there probably is a God, and, and yes, if there is a God, I'm held accountable to Him, but he, He's not really like that strict. Right? He's like a nice grandpa in the sky that's just going to let everything fly. Right? That, that's what it is when you talk about God today, and and. But here's the thing. Um, let, let me just give you a verse to help you with this. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Okay, if you write that down, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Um, look at this verse. It starts off by saying this. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So if you just pause there, everybody's like, yeah, that's the God I believe. He's, he's loving, he's forgiving, he's merciful, he's gracious, he forgives sins. He's just a nice grandpa in the sky. Everything's going to be fine. And so if you, if you just read that first part of those verses, people will be like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I believe about God. But, but if you read the rest of it, that's when people, whoa, 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 wait a minute. 
The rest of it says, and that will by no means clear the guilty. That's, that's a view of God that, that people just don't understand. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's kind. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Because he's a just, righteous, holy God. And, and look, I love how the, that verse has it right there together. It doesn't separate it. Like, oh, there's a loving God here. And, and, and the, the God of the Old Testament, he's really mean and angry. But the God of the New Testament, he's loving. And, and he's just going to let everything go. And everything's going to be fine. But no, God is loving and gracious, but he's also just and holy, and he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And when we're sharing the gospel, people need to understand that about God. He won't allow the guilty to go unpunished. That is really, really scary. Thankfully, the, the message doesn't end there, because that would be very, very bad news. Okay? And, and here's the thing. If you're talking with people about this, and, and you tell them that God doesn't allow guilty sinners to go unpunished... Um, they're going to kind of, ah, they don't like that at first. But here's the thing. They like that with everyone else except for themselves. So to give you an example, if you said, do you think Hitler um, deserves judgment from God for what he did while he was here? Most people are going to say, yeah. I mean, he killed millions of people. The guy was psycho. Like, yes, he deserves judgment. But if, if you turn it around and say, do you deserve judgment for the wrong that you've done in this life? Well, no, come on. Like, it's not that big of a deal. And, and, and it's so funny how we hold this level of justice, especially with others, but not with ourselves. Like, we want justice, man. When, when that person cuts us off in traffic, we want justice, right? But when we cut someone off in traffic, like, come on, just give me a little bit of mercy. And, and that's unfortunately the view that kind of goes over into our view of God. We think he's only merciful. But he's not just merciful, he's just He's holy, he's righteous, and I say this all the time, but if we were in a courtroom and there was a guilty rapist murderer on trial and the judge said, yes, he's guilty, we have evidence, but man, I'm just a loving judge and so I'm going to let him go. We'd be outraged that the entire nation would be in an uproar about that. That's unjust, that judge is not fit to judge. But we don't hold that same standard for the God of the universe who really is the origin of justice and righteousness and truth. Okay, so God, we have to understand that there is a God. He created us. He's told us how to live. He's going to hold us accountable for that. And he will not allow sinners to go unpunished. <clears throat> he can't. That would be against his character. He's unable to. And to kind of bring it a little bit further before we move on to the next point, if, if there was someone who was mistreating my wife and I didn't do anything about it, don't you think that would be a bit unloving for me as a husband? And yet, yet we think that God is just going to allow his creatures to just do all kinds of damage on this earth to not only the people he created, but to the universe he created. I mean, to just spit in his face and to not do anything about it. Not only is it just to punish sinners, it's loving to do so. It's, it's, it's out of his character. He has to. He's righteous. He's holy. And, and that's what we need to understand about God. If someone were threatening your family and you didn't do anything about it, it would be unloving. And the same is true for God. When, when, he, when God sees people threatening his rule and his reign and, and his loving rule on his creatures, he has to do something about it. And in Hebrews 9.27, it warns us, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So when we're understanding the gospel, God, man, Christ's response, and we start with God, people need to understand that they will stand before God one day and give an account for their lives. That's really what it comes down to. 
Do you understand that you will stand before God one day and give an account for your life? People need to understand that. And they need to understand that the same Bible that taught us that God is love also teaches us that he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. When people say God is love, you know that was a fairly new concept that came from Christianity. Like people, people with, with the pagan gods and deities had this idea that, man, the God of the weather, if you don't, if you don't sacrifice something, he's going to send you hail and ruin your crops. Like they were afraid of these, these gods that they used to believe in. But when the Christian message came that God is love, that was different. That was new. Now in America, that's, that's kind of commonplace. Yeah, God is love. Everybody knows that. But the same Bible that taught us that teaches us that God is just. And people need to understand that. So when we're going about sharing the gospel with people, they need to understand, first of all, that God will hold them accountable. He will. He's loving, but he's also just. He's grace, but he's also truth. We've got to understand that, okay? So God, we are accountable to him. Secondly, man, we have sinned against God. So God created Adam and Eve, and he created them to live in perfect, joyful fellowship with with him while submitting to his loving rule over them. But they chose to rebel. And a lot of times when we, when we look at what they did in the garden, we have this idea that it was just kind of a slip. Oh, they messed up. But what they did there is they denied his love and his goodness and his, and his rule. And they declared rebellion against him. What, what, what happened in the garden was cosmic rebellion against the God of the universe. God created them and he said, I made you in my image. And if you study that in, in, in that background, what he was doing is oftentimes kings to declare their rule over a territory, they would build a statue. I'm kind of like Nebuchadnezzar in that story in the Bible. They build this big statue of themselves and say, this territory belongs to me. I am the king of this territory. And what God did when he made Adam and Eve in his image is he made them little statues, little living, breathing statues, declaring his rule and reign over the earth. And what does he say? He says, have dominion over everything. You are going to rule as my vice regents over creation. But then Satan came along. And what does he do? He tempts them. He says, God's holding out on you and and, and you should eat this fruit. And, And what he did was he tried to turn this upside down and he got them to rebel against their king. So yeah, if it's, a, if it's a little slip and a little mess up, like we're like, man, God, you're kind of extreme about that, but that's not what it was. We need to understand that God was the righteous king ruling over the earth, and he gave that, a little bit of that authority to Adam and Eve and asked them to extend his good, righteous rule over the earth, and they rebelled. It would be like a, a person turning and pointing their arrow against their own king and trying to fire back at him. This was rebellion. This wasn't just a, a mess up here. Okay, and so, so what happened there when Adam and Eve stepped into sin and rebelled against the Creator, the Bible says that all of us were born with that sin nature. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin or the paycheck for that sin is death, separation from God. And it's eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Something that a lot of people don't like to talk about these days. And, and frankly, I don't like to talk about, but the Bible's very clear. Listen, I don't believe in hell because I want people to go there. I believe in hell because I believe that this is God's word. And he very clearly warns us against hell. And, and Jesus preached against hell, uh, preached about hell more than he preached about heaven. Warning people that this is real. Hell is real. God will hold you accountable for it. And there's a place for those who do not submit to him. 
And we need to understand that today, that it's a real thing. Okay, and so if we are going to stand before a creator who by no means clears the guilty, and, he, and we're going to give an account for our lives before him, and all of us have sinned, that's not good news at all. But there's a little word in that verse, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, so that the paycheck of your sin, the, the, the penalty for your sin is, is death, eternal separation from God, but... And thank God for that three-letter word. Right? Man, our, our, our loved ones, they got in a big car accident, but everyone's okay. We, we found a little spot, and we went in to check it for cancer, but it's not cancerous. Thank God for that little word. It can really change really bad news into really good news. And notice what it says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the good news of the gospel, which brings us to our next point. So we have God, we're accountable to him, we have man, we've sinned and fall short of God. And thirdly, Christ, the solution to man's sin. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As John 3.16 so beautifully puts it, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the solution to man's sin. That God was so loving that yes, he's just. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he will pour his wrath out on sinners. But he loves us enough to send a savior to pay for our sins. He sent Jesus to come to this world to live the life that we could never live. To take our sins to the cross. And in that moment, Christ absorbed the wrath of God, the just wrath of God that we deserved. That just judge that has to punish sinners said, I'm going to punish sinners, but I'm going to do it in my own son. This is incredible for us to understand that God is just, but he's also loving. And so how do you do that? How do you forgive sinners if you're just? How do you figure this out? But God said, here's how. I'm going to pay for sin myself. So that I'll uphold my justice, but I'll also uphold my love and my grace and my mercy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The solution to man's sin was that Christ would come, he would die for our sins, he would be in the grave for three days, he would rise triumphantly to conquer death, hell, the grave, and sin, and that through him now we can be made the righteousness of God. We can be declared righteous so god can allow us into his presence for all eternity to become his sons and daughters not on the basis of our works but on the basis of christ and his life and death on our behalf that's amazing that's absolutely amazing that a god who by no means clears the guilty says i'm going to punish the guilty by punishing my own son in their place it's a beautiful beautiful thing to understand Christ rose from the dead. He showed himself alive for 40 days with many proofs. And then he ascended to to the Father to make intercession for us. And through his word now, he offers salvation to all of us who will respond. Which brings us to the final word in this idea of understanding the gospel and this response. What is our response? How do we become included in this gospel, in this good news? And our response is we must repent and believe. What God expects of us once we've heard the gospel 
is repentance and faith. It's very clear. It's all throughout the scriptures. Mark 1.15, Jesus himself said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So if repentance and faith is, is our response to the gospel, then, then what do those things mean? Let me really quickly help you understand. First of all, to repent simply means to turn. Okay, so if I say I want to go to Caseville after the service, because i got to get there to preach, and, and I get in my car and I head to Grindstone, okay, I've, I've got to repent. Right? I've got to change my mind, understand I'm going the wrong way, and turn and head to Caseville. It's really simple. A repentance, really, if you break down the definition, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. If you want to go to Caseville um, and you head north, then you're going the wrong way. You've got to repent. That's simply what repentance means. And when we hear the gospel that we are in cosmic rebellion against our Creator, and that He's going to hold us accountable for it, we no longer think that that's okay. (laughs) There was a time when we were going this way and we thought it was fine, but then we hear the gospel and we'll hold up, I can't keep going this way. I can't keep rebelling against my creator. It doesn't mean that we stop sinning. It's that we change our mind, our relationship about our sin. I love what Greg Gilbert says. He says, repentance doesn't mean we'll bring an immediate end to our sinning. It does mean, though, that we'll never again live at peace with our sins. So so if I talk to someone who claims to be a Christian and they're living in open, unrepentant sin... And they're just telling me about all the sin that they're part of. And then they say things like, yeah, but Jesus still loves me. You know, I'm good. And they just have no, no hatred for their sin at all. I really question if they understand the gospel. If their dead heart was really brought to life by the gospel. It's not that we bring an end to sinning. It's that we don't have a relationship with sin anymore like we used to. We hate our sin. Look, as your pastor, I struggle with sin every single day. I hate it. I want to put it to death. And every day I try to put my my foot on its throat and kill it. But every day it seems to creep up again. But I don't live at peace with it anymore. When When I hear the gospel, that's cosmic rebellion against my good and loving creator. I repent of that. That's the first part. And then that brings us to faith. What is faith? Faith is simply trust or reliance. It's resting on Jesus alone to save us from our sins. I use this illustration all the time, but when you came in today, I didn't see anyone check the chairs to make sure that it would hold you. You just sat in the chair. You put your faith in that chair. All right? And it's so funny because we use faith every single day. And when we come into religious things, you know, people make fun of you. You know, you guys are just people of faith and you're just stepping out with blind faith. And, but we use faith every single day. I mean, well, I want you to think about this. When you're driving 70 miles an hour and it's dark and you're about to go around a curve over a bridge... You have faith that there's going to be a bridge there, right? Because if there's not, bad things are going to happen. But you don't think twice about it. You just have faith that, yeah, whoever built the roads probably thought it would be a good idea to build a bridge so that we don't go crashing into the river, right? What about when you go to a restaurant? You have faith that those cooks, uh, we don't know what they're doing back there, right? Like We have no idea what's going on in the, in the back room of a restaurant unless you work there and you're like, yeah, I do, and that's why I don't eat at restaurants, right? But we don't know what's going on back there But we place our order, they bring us our food, and they say, this is okay to eat. Enjoy. And we have faith, and we eat that food. We have faith when we go to the store and buy medicine that's supposedly going to help us. Well, I hope whoever put this little concoction together that's going to be okay to put into my body. We exercise faith all the time. It's it's, it's resting on something. It's relying on something. And and oftentimes, there's, there's very strong evidence for that. 
Okay, so, so there is a long history of evidence that certain medications are going to be okay for us to take. It, there's, there's, a co- there's, a, there's a pretty common idea out there that if we go to a restaurant, we're probably not going to get poisoned to death. And so, so there's, a, there's a confidence there, but then we rest on it. And, and there's so much confidence for us that Christ came, that he really was here, that he really lived a perfect life, that he really died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again. There's so much evidence for us. And we, we understand that God of the universe came, and he lived that life, and he died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again, and we rest on that to save us. We recognize I could not save myself. I could never be good enough to get to heaven. I could never be good enough to gain God's approval. And so I'm resting in what Jesus did. And so repentance and faith is to turn and to trust. It's really quite simple. And you can't really have one without the other. They're really two sides of the same coin. If I'm sitting in this chair and this chair is is about to break and I'm about to fall and die. Okay, I need to repent of this chair and I need to get up and sit in this chair. I can't keep living in this way and and thinking that rebellion and sin is okay uh, and then claim to be a believer. No, you repent and you believe. You turn and you trust. It's it's really one thing. If you look at all throughout the scriptures, you'll see sometimes they tell people just to repent. There's no belief. And then other times they tell people just to believe. But but if you take the scriptures and see what it is all throughout, they're, they're really two sides of the same coin. You repent and you believe. You turn and you trust. You rest in what Jesus alone has done for you for salvation. That's our response. Well, when, you, when you're explaining the gospel to someone, you simply tell them, you need to understand that there is a God. He's going to hold you accountable. You're a sinner. That sin needs to be punished. Christ took that punishment for you on the cross. And now you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone to save you. That's the gospel. Real simple. And so I want you today, as, as we close, if, if we think about this idea of a life on mission, what, what are we going to use to go on mission? What's our weapon, right? What's, what's that thing we need to get a hold of? It's the gospel. You need to understand the gospel. And so memorize those points. God, man, Christ, response. Memorize it. Think about it. Understand it. Know it. Okay, to, to kind of summarize it for you, I put it, In a sentence, what is the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins and rose again to reconcile us to God. There's a a million ways you could put it, but but you need to understand God, man, Christ's response. That needs to be mixed in somewhere. That we are going to be held accountable to God, that we're sinners, that Christ paid for our sins, that we need to repent and believe. That's what people need to understand in the gospel. And what I want you to do this week is we're going to get into details on how exactly do we share this, what are some good ways of sharing this, but, but I don't want to get into that today. I just want you to understand how powerful just declaring the gospel is. It's the power of God. It's backed by the God of the universe. The same God that said, let there be light, said that this is the power of God. And so have confidence in it. And then this is, this is what I want you to do. This is your assignment this week, okay? I just want you to memorize and meditate on the gospel. As we consider this idea of going on mission, we need to memorize the gospel. We need to know it. If there's one truth, we need to know it's the gospel. More than anything you've memorized for your work, more than anything you've memorized for your, for your family life, more than anything else, we need to know the gospel. We need to understand this message. So memorize it this week. God, man, Christ's response. How, how would I share that? What is the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again to reconcile us to God. And know the gospel. 
Be confident in your knowledge of the gospel. And then what I want you to do is just meditate on it. After you've memorized it, meditate on it. Really, really allow the gospel to, to allow your soul to be soaked in the gospel. This past week, we had the opportunity after Sunday morning, actually last week, we went to the Dark Sky Preserve and, and we went there and we were looking at the stars. It's pitch black out there. We played a little bit of worship music about God and creation and we were just looking up at the stars and I can't explain to you the feelings that rushed into my heart and mind as I looked at those stars and, and just felt so, so small. But, but what really just made that whole experience even better was to think that the God who made all of that came to this world, stepped into our brokenness, took my sins to the cross, and paid for them completely so that I could be reconciled to Him. And just as you would be in awe of a sunset or of stars or, or of whatever, I want you this week to be in awe of the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to reconcile you to God. Don't just memorize it this week. Meditate on it. Just think about it. The agony that Christ went to to purchase you. The sufferings of the cross. And the subsequent glory of Him in heaven. Think about the gospel this week. Memorize it and meditate on it. That's the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. Why? It is the power of God.